while your day is winding down, they're just getting started. This is South Coast Tonight with Chris McCarthy and Marcus Farrow. They've got you covered on all the news of the day. From local issues to politics on both sides of the aisle. This is the place where the movers and shakers come to be heard. To listen. And where they're held accountable. This is South Coast Tonight on WBSM. Welcome back to South Coast Tonight. I'm Marcus Farrow. And I'm Chris McCarthy. Hey, we're joined, uh, We're going to be joined by Bristol County Sheriff Paul Harrow in just a little bit. But first, we're joined by Ward 5 City Councilor Scott Lima. Hey, Scott. Chris and Mark, how are you? Good, how you doing? doing? Well. Good, good. Can you hear me okay? Yes, yeah, sir. we can hear you great. Great, okay. I have you on speakerphone. It's a little easy to talk this way. <laughs> Thanks for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. I appreciate the opportunity. We, we appreciate you reaching out and um, and and wanting to join us. And, uh, and, and Scott, before we get started, I got to ask you, um, you know, you pulled papers for at large. People have been calling in and asking us for a while um, what your intentions are with that. I know I had asked you before um, privately, but uh, just wondering if you have any sort of public statement on that. Uh, I don't have a public statement. I mean, if you give me a couple of minutes, I can give you some reasons why. I didn't expect to talk about this. I don't know if we're going to get to the housing, but if you uh, give me a couple of minutes, just cut me off if you need to. Sure. Um, sure. So, first of all, let's be clear that uh, a couple of things. One, I pulled papers. I haven't gotten one signature yet. But pulling papers is somewhat of an indication of interest. I think you did a good job of parsing my statement. Um, I think it took a little while before people realized that when I said I would start running for Ward 5 City Councilor, that I wasn't closing the door for not running for any other office. Certainly. So, you parsed that statement, and I think that, that it was written intentionally the way that it was written. Mm -hmm. um, that, was, that was certainly no mistake. So, I pulled papers. So will I definitely run for a culture at large? I don't know. I have, I have papers. I haven't gotten one signature yet. Why? So if we get, if we get to the why, um, since I've become uh, a city councilor, I'm in my sixth year. So the first year, uh, excuse me, the second year of my third term. Um, my, my thought process um, has, and my interests have expanded way beyond Ward 5. They've expanded way beyond the ward. Okay. Um, and I'll just give you, a, you know, a for instance, I'm on the board of directors of the, of the New Bedford Ocean Cluster, um, which we have four pillars uh, that we're concerned with. So my interests have gone from strictly Ward 5. Um, they've expanded. When you're on the Ocean Cluster, you're looking at everything on the, on the waterfront. You're mm -hmm. looking at everything from uh, everything that takes place in Ward, certainly in Wards 3, 4, and 6, mm -hmm. uh, and not necessarily in Ward 2. Uh, wards one and wards five do not have any waterfront property. So real, real, real quickly, ward six, um, we're involved in aquaculture on the New Bedford Ocean Cluster. Clark's Cove, though we have the CSO problems with the combined sewer overflow, um, I'm interested in aquaculture. It's something I've been interested in a long time. So now my my focus has shifted not just from ward five, but you know what's going to happen in Clark's Cove? Mm -hmm. What's going to happen with aquaculture in the city? It's a great opportunity. Look at ward four. That's for harbor and offshore wind. So the offshore wind staging areas are down there. Everything to do with um, uh, uh, our fishing fleet is in Ward 4. If you start going over to Ward 3, you have fish processing. Um, you have um, uh, the new National Offshore Wind uh, Institute is putting up a facility there. And kind of, this is really a stretch, but I know that there was talks years ago of maybe bringing sculling, the, the sport of sculling, to uh, New Bedford which is something that could happen in the, in the far north branch of the Cushion River, which gets up to, toward Ward 2. So there may be some Ward councils listening. I'm not trying to step on anyone's toes. 
if I were to run and if I were to win, I'd want to work with ward councilors. But I just mentioned to you three, uh, several things that happened along the waterfront in four different wards, and none of them are Ward 5. That's kind of the long story short. So uh, appreciate that, uh, appreciate that, Scott. So going on and to the- you know what? And, one, and just 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 one one last thing also, parallel products. That's something that I'm that I'm not in favor of. That's in Ward One. So if I were if I were to run for uh, for Gunnison Lodge and I were elected, I would stand um, uh, with the people in in Ward One against parallel products. So that kind of wraps that up. But that kind of gives you a flavor for for my thinking and how and how things have changed since I've been elected. So Scott, um, going on to the housing, uh, you you uh, the mayor released this comprehensive housing plan uh, to address some of the housing crises that are going on. Um, what what are, what are your general thoughts on it? Sure. So I, um, uh, in the past, you and I have uh, I think differed a little bit on language, and um, that may be the same here. It's, it's called a comprehensive housing plan. I see it as more of a roadmap. Um, I think it's going to take a year or two before you can really come up with a comprehensive housing plan, and that would be born of, of projects that are uh, going to be completed within a year or two and other projects that could be coming online. If you look at the plan, which I call a roadmap, and I congratulate, first of all, I congratulate the mayor for putting together this, this plan, and I congratulate Councillor uh, Burgo for bringing this to the forefront. He's taken a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of heat, but you know what? He's, he's really, really brought this to the forefront, and I don't know that we would have a plan that's reduced to writing at this point in time, if it weren't for Council Burgle. I think that's um, fair. Raising, I really think that's fair. Um, yeah, I agree. Raising this issue. So, um, you know, when, when you look at the plan, like, there's five pages that are devoted to the introduction. You know, that's an introduction. I mean, there's, there's we need empirical data. I'll give you an example. There is a 30-unit build, 30 unit, uh, building in the city. I talked to a developer. He paid $100,000 per unit. And he thought he was paying a, a little bit up for it. That's that's three million dollars in acquisition costs. If he were to put seventy five thousand in that seventy five thousand dollars per unit, I'm throwing that number out there, being inclusive of the common areas, right? Because you have to prorate uh, that cost to the common areas. Right. You know, you're all in for maybe one hundred seventy five thousand dollars per unit, maybe two hundred thousand dollars per unit. If you look at the plan, it says that rehab costs could be up to like like up, like you know, three hundred thousand dollars per unit. Yeah, I don't know that the number that number is real. So, empirical data when projects are done, particularly a project like this where you're rehabbing a, an apartment building, an existing apartment building, I think the costs are going to be lower. Maybe not much lower, but lower. So, um, again, five pages of introduction. That's not a plan. That's an explanation. Um, but there is some really good stuff in here. I think that the, that what this um, that what this framework uh, uh, also says. And I, I, I joked around with Josh Amaral on this. Josh Amaral has become the housing czar. We now have a housing czar in the city. His yeah. job, to me, has completely changed since he came into office um, in, in December. This forces him to become the housing czar. I joked about him with him that the other day. Um, so it's good, but I really think that it's more of a framework than a plan. A plan, and I'll just use an example. Um, as you probably know, I'm a huge fan of the um, of, of Community Preservation Act. I've looked at the reporting that the, that the Community Preservation Committee has done since the plan has been implemented, and you see how the reporting has changed and how, and how it has matured. And the data that you can now pull from that really helps you plan for the future. 70% of the, of the allocation, I believe it's going to go to Ward 4. 
Um, I'm the Ward 5 counselor. I'd like to see more money go to Ward 5. But the fact of the matter is, is that most of the cultural institutions where a lot of money is going is in Ward 4. Right. And we should congratulate Ward 4 for getting that money. But it also shows you that very, very little money is coming to Ward 5. And not only is that happening through CPA, but because Ward 5 is in particular census tracts based on wealth and poverty, mm-hmm. we can't get money for, for, for other projects because the money goes to parts of the city that are not quite as affluent. So the Ward 5 counselor, I have to fight really hard to get any other money into Ward 5 because based on census tract information, we're not getting a ton of money. Um, CPA, we're not getting a ton of money. But the empirical data that you see in the, CP, in the CPA report gives me that information, which then helps me fight for other money. So that's why, again, I call this more of a framework. I think you'll know down the road what a plan looks like. So two more seconds. I worked on my metaphors for this particular thing. I go to Horseneck Beach a lot. On some days, it's a beautiful beach. But you know what? When you go down to St. John and the Virgin Islands like I do, that's when you know you've seen a great beach. That's beautiful. So you, know, you know what you see when you see it. So I think that this is more of a road I'm not map. a big fan of the donkeys, um, but other than that, it's a beautiful beach. <laughs> um, so I think a, a year or two down the road, um, we'll be able to have something that's that's much more um, that's much more comprehensive. Scott, what's your um? So you said you're you're a big fan. You're you know obviously you're a big fan of the CPA. You voted against that ballot question um, that came forward, and you're going to vote uh, against that again, right? Uh, when it comes up next week. Well, well, the thing is, it's it's actually. So I think I think it's more correct to say that I'll vote to sustain the mayor's veto. Okay. That's, yeah, so that, that's voting against it, but I will vote to sustain the mayor's veto. Where are you on the that rent? I'm in support. Where are you on the rent stabilization question? I'll have an announcement on that next next week. I'm 50-50. Okay, okay. Well, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah, uh, I, I, so well, uh, this is what I'm saying is before the vote comes up next next Thursday, I will, I will have a... I, I, I will absolutely announce how I intend to vote. So you know how I'm voting on CPA. I'm going to vote to sustain the mayor's veto. Um, I will announce probably on Monday how I plan to vote on the rent stabilization ballot question. And I'll, and I'll have a press release uh, with regard to the mayoral term. Okay, interesting. Super. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you very much. Scott, is there any... Um I appreciate you coming on talking about the housing issue. Obviously, it's probably the most salient issue in the city for for most people, um, and actually, really in the Commonwealth. Is there anything else that we left out of the conversation that you'd like to include? No, I I, um, I, I think um, just just bringing up the, the you know the subject and talking about it um, is important. I don't mm-hmm. think you've left anything out. I'm um, most of most of my. Um, reading on the on the plan has been toward the beginning of the plan, um, and not toward the home ownership part. But really, it's on the it's on really on the rent part. Po- folks that are going to be paying rent. Sure. That's the part of the plan that I that I've really studied. Um, but I don't think there's anything you left out. But you, well, the you conversation will continue. To, Safe absolutely. to say, right? The conversation will continue. Absolutely. Scott, thanks you so didn't much. Ask me what my favorite TV show is. <laughs> oh, we didn't ask. <laughs> we did. What, what is, is your, What is your favorite TV show? Nice to show you how nerdy, how nerdy I am. <laughs> Prime Minister's Questions. Have you ever watched Prime of Minister's Questions? Of course I have. Of course that I have. That is my favorite. Absolute Who was your favorite, favorite Prime Minister? I don't know that I have a favorite. I, I like the current Prime Minister. 
I like him. He, I like him a lot. He squared away. I love away. when he beats up labor. Yep. I love when he beats up labor, and he and he and, he, and he'll say something to, to the labor about how we're, how they're with the thugs and how he is with <laughs> the British people. I just absolutely <laughs> love it. Johnson wasn't bad either. He wasn't. He wasn't. One, and I'll tell he you, he was this. humorous. I, I watched. I watched his last speech, mm-hmm. and his last speech, he said something very important. His closing words. And the first thing he said, he said, now I'm going to give you my closing words, quote. And he said, first, stay with the American people. Well, so the question that was, um, if, if, I, if I have any advice for the next prime minister, mm-hmm. this is what my advice would be. And then he said, quote, stick with the American people. That was the very first thing he said. And then he went on to you know, support Ukraine, and he said some other things. But the first thing he said was stick with the American people. I like that. I absolutely that. love I love that. That's great stuff. Thank Scott. Council Lima. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. All right, I think this is Sheriff Harrell. Hey, Marcus, how's it going? Hey, you're here with Marcus and Chris. Um, we appreciate you calling in. I know it's been kind of a busy day for you. Really appreciate it, Sheriff. Thank you. How how you doing? Yeah, so I'm doing just fine. I'm actually driving right now, so I'm, uh, I left uh, the uh, house correction jail just uh, probably about ten minutes ago. So I'm just heading to go get some dinner. So. Um, I, I know you had a press conference, uh, but for the people in the audience that weren't able to hear it on TV, uh, for us, I wasn't able to to to, to be there. Um, what are the details of the incident that you can um, that you can that you can tell us? Yeah, sure. So, um, okay, there's a lot of moving parts. So I'll I'll take you through it. I'll give you the story. We were in the process of moving inmates from one housing unit to another housing unit, and we're doing that for a lot of different housing units. Now. Why did we want to move inmates from around housing units? The new admissions that we have coming in were being housed in single cells or double cells. When you have new admissions, new admins, inmates, um, being in a single or a double, you don't have a lot of eyes. It's a risk for suicide. So we said, okay, we're going to move all of the inmates into, um, we're going to move the inmates into, uh, you know, like uh, the new admissions into GA. And, um, you know, I'm sorry, not GAGC. Sorry, I was just distracted as I'm driving. Um, we're moving to Mason to GC. So that new admins are now in a dormitory-style setting. That's going to help reduce our suicide risk. This is one of the recommendations that we got from our Lindy Hayes, our suicide expert. We were planning on doing it anyway. This is how it was done before COVID, just to be clear. We were going back to pre-COVID uh, levels. So that was something that, um, you know, would have made for a better situation. Now, in the process, we have to move inmates around. Now, at the same time, we also um, are looking at closing Ash Street. And one of the things we have to do to close Ash Street is to retrofit some of the um, housing units. And those housing units just happen to be GA and GB, the two housing units that we had a problem with today. Uh, one much more of a problem than the other. So... When, as we're moving inmates around to accommodate these several things that we're doing, um, there was uh, in one of the housing units, uh, GB, which housed 75 inmates at the time, uh, 17 inmates became agitated. They got it in their mind that they didn't want to be moved to a different housing unit. So they didn't want to move to a different housing unit, so they said, no, we're not moving. So we cleared our, and they, we could tell they were getting agitated. Your security staff recognized what was going on. They moved the correctional staff out and the um, inmates basically there was no at this point there was no take you know, de-escalating them even early on they had heard rumors that 
we were, um, you know, going to be reducing their rec time and reducing the amount of time they can talk to, you know, for visits and stuff. And that's just not true. We were not going to be doing that. We just, you know, some rumors are endemic in politics and corrections. And it's just it's how it goes. So they became agitated. They, uh, we pulled our security staff. There's two correctional officers on this housing unit. We pulled them out. We locked it down. They then trashed the unit. And we're talking maybe 100000 to $200,000 worth of damage. Okay. Um, so meanwhile, the housing unit over, the other one, GA, they had 63 inmates. And I apologize for the noise. I'm actually going over the Baraka Bridge right now. Um, so uh, we had 63 inmates there. Now, they're able to communicate with each other, shouting at each other through the windows um, you know, out to the outside, and they could hear it. So they start, the, the inmates, these 63 inmates in G, um, GA started to get a little bit agitated as well. But they never rose to the level. They, they destroyed the center console that would uh, control the opening and closing of doors. We locked that down, and then we left there as well, and they destroyed that. But that was the extent of the damage in that housing unit, so really not much. Um, so, you know, at this point, you know, it's it's between... 10, 12 o'clock. We were trying to de-escalate the situation, talk to them. Um, they gave us a, list, a written list of demands, which I then uh, responded to all of the demands. I retyped up a response and, you know, gave it to uh, correctional staff. Staff brought it back over to them, and they didn't even read it. They just ripped it up and threw it back at us you know, through <laughs> the window. Yeah, they, they were just, it was at a point of no return. You know, it was just, they were just, they had it, they, they dug their heels in. So, um, that we, we recognized that we had what would, to sure, back what, what, the what were some of the demands? You know, they wanted, um, okay, it was, it was a, a lot of stuff that was reasonable that I was going to do anyway. They wanted uh, to try and lower the canteen prices and lower the phone call prices, stuff that we were looking at doing anyway. So, you know, they wanted more programming, better vocational program, better reentry. And they wanted um, so all those things we were planning Wait, on doing. Sh- Sheriff, did they did they did they put in there? We want to lower the recidivism rate at, at the Bristol County Sheriff's Office. No, they didn't say that in those words. But they they also wanted to have the per- very first demand was they wanted the phones restored immediately, and they said now. And we were just that was one we were not going to accommodate because that's a security issue right. uh, during a situation like this. We weren't going to. You know, turn the tablets back on. Let them communicate. You know, with the outside world. Okay. You know, we because that's that's when things. You know, I mean, in fact, one correctional officer. This was a problem. They're not supposed to do this. One correctional officer actually brought his cell phone into the unit. Um, he was one of the COs that was pulled out, um, and you know, they they gained control of the CO's uh, cell phone, and that's a problem because then they start circulating rumors. Oh, they had certain. Yeah, they, and they said this to the outside world, that they had to cre- uh, captured a correctional officer. Another rumor was that a CO or maybe it was an inmate got killed. None of that was true. Nobody got hurt. I mean, like, literally, I mean, it's just, like, it was, it, the main objective was to de-escalate the situation. That didn't happen. You know, but the next thing was to keep everyone safe. You know, the correctional officers and the COs, um, the COs and the uh, inmates. And that was accomplished. So we regained control of both housing units without anybody getting hurt. Um, but, you know, some of the other demands that they had, like I said, it was like, we want TVs. Like, so I, I, I typed back and gave to them, which they never even read my responses. But I said, look, you guys just destroyed your TVs. You know, they had TVs on the walls <laughs> in the housing unit. I said, so no, we're not going to give you this how you treat your stuff. I said, you'll get your tablets back when, you know, we'll, we'll reactivate those. 
so yeah, it was basically, um, you know, it was it had to do the, the, the trigger to this was, you know, the uh, going back to pre-COVID. It was actually returning inmates to the housing arrangements before COVID, where you had inmates, you know, new admissions in the, uh, you know, dormitory style. And then we also, you know, so we had to shuffle people around and then also start on the construction to, um, you know, put toilets and cells and locks on doors. Now, something the public probably doesn't realize is we have capacity for 1,400 inmates, but we can only lock 700 inmates behind doors, actually less than 700 behind doors. We have half of our capacity doesn't have locks on doors because the cells don't have toilets in them. So if we had toilets and cells and locks on doors, this would have never happened. And Marcus, you and I have talked about this in the past. This is part of my plan. I've seen this as a problem. We have a way to address it. Um, we were going to roll things out using canteen money. But in the, you know, in the process, though, it, it, hopefully the state will give us more money faster to put toilets and cells and locks on doors so this doesn't happen again. Uh, because the problem was we had to respond to I'm sorry, 75 inmates in one place and 63 in another. You have to have a lot of 100 COs, 100 security staff ready to respond to that many inmates. You know, if it's, you know, that's why we needed to call in um, Suffolk, Hamden, Norfolk, Barnstable, and Plymouth County. They all responded, as did the DOC. We had well over 100 SRT, uh, you know, uh, special response team available to go. Yeah, so that was actually my next question. We we weren't sure if that the the the. So, I mean, I was there for a bit. There were fleets of vehicles coming in. We weren't sure if that was uh, a proportional response or something that was just protocol. But what you're saying it was a, it was for proportional response. It had to be because we had a hundred and you know if we have like sixty plus uh, seventy, so we had uh, you know one hundred and thirty mm-hmm. uh, inmates. So we had the five and three. So we had one hundred and thirty eight inmates. If I did my math right, mad quickly. <laughs> Um, we had to deal with. You have to have more security than you do inmates to take back a housing unit because otherwise, if it's you know if it's one to one, that you know and that one of those COs is overpowered, then you have to deal with two on one somewhere else. Right. So we had to make sure we had enough COs to outnumber the inmates if things went bad. Unfortunately, but for the property damage, things didn't go bad nobody was there were nobody was hurt no COs were hurt no no inmates were hurt um we showed force but we really didn't need to use force and certainly there was no excessive force we're speaking with sheriff paul haru of bristol county uh sheriff haru um speak you you mentioned though that one of the guards as i understand it broke the rules brought his cell phone on to, in, into the cell block it was taken away from him by the inmates was that a violent struggle? Did he give it up? What no, happened in that case? No, no. Actually, okay. We refer to them as correctional officers, to be clear, because they're not guarding; they're actually managing people. Just like we give give them their, I always give them their shout out for being a correctional officer rather than a guard. But the uh, what happened was after the correctional staff had left the housing unit, this phone was left behind in his lunchbox or something like that. Now he wasn't supposed to. He, I'm not even sure if he or she. I don't even know at this point. It's kind of incidental. That they weren't supposed to bring it on the housing unit in the first place, but they, you know, the, the uh, lunchbox was gone through. You know, they took the cell phone. Eventually, we got the cell phone back, and you know, um, but that, that's, there's a reason. 
for everything. There's a policy and procedure for everything. And, you know, keeping cell phones out of jails, um, you know, these secure housing areas is one of those uh, policies we have for a lot of uh, good reasons. So, Sheriff, someone called into the afternoon program on uh, Barry Richards' show and said that they were an inmate in one of the adjacent units. And uh, so I had said to, you know, just from my experience as a defense lawyer that, um, you know, you have to go through that whole uh, just process with Securus and you'd have to put your credit card in and all of that. But it, I guess, was it possible if that was an actual inmate that called in from a cell phone? It's possible it was. It actually, because it could have been, wow. I mean, I doubt it. I doubt that's the case. It could, they might have used that CEO's phone if they somehow got into it. Now, I'm doubtful because, you know, the, uh, you know, usually if it's an iPhone, you've got a five digit or a six digit, uh, you know, code you have to enter. So I'm doubtful that was a valid call. I mean, it's possible. It's, it it may, maybe happened, but um, I, I just don't know. So we're speaking with Bristol County Sheriff Paul Harrell. We're uh, talking about the incident that occurred earlier um, earlier today. So um, there were, I, I had somebody tell me that there were 17 employees that were, I mean, 17, um, 17 inmates that were moved to other jails. Is that correct? Uh, there were 17 from one housing unit and three from another. The 17 inmates that were moved out of the first housing unit, the one that got trashed, um, those were the agitators. Those were the ringleaders that really fomented a lot of the disturbance. In the other housing unit, there were three inmates and they were also agitators and we also moved them to uh, different county jails. We spread them out. And we actually, we house inmates from other counties that agitate in those places too. Um, and we do that because we, we recognize the, um, you know, the potential for them to reignite a situation. They have a following, they have uh, people they know, so we want we isolate them and put them in another jail. And, we, and like I said, it's called it's mutual aid. We help out other jails, just like if another jail had a situation tonight or tomorrow, we would send our SRT team, our you know that come in with the you know the full body armor to keep them safe. Um, you know, but we help each other out. That's, that's what we do in corrections. Oh, we're speaking with Sheriff Paul Haru, the Bristol County Sheriff. Um, Sheriff, um, among these seventeen. Is there a common denominator among them? Do they have leadership in their paperwork? Um, what, what, what got them going specifically? What, what gave them a leadership role here? Well, the, all of the people in both housing units were all awaiting trial. Okay. And they were awaiting trial for all sorts of different charges. Uh, we did have some people in there who were awaiting trial on murder charges. So I let the, uh, all the security staff know that in advance going into the housing unit, um, they had... Uh, broken things apart and created contraband. So, you know, there was there were some dangerous people in there. Okay. Um, you know, but the but the common denominator was the susceptibility of these seventeen to get worked up over rumors. And you know, now they might have created the rumors and believed the rumors, <laughs> but they were they were no that happens. I mean, some oh, people I know. say something. Yeah, they'll say something, and because they they heard it, they said it. Well, it must be true. You know, because they believe it, and so. Like I said earlier in the program, some folks, uh, you know, the agitators were circulating, well, they're going to take away our rec time. They're going to take away our visitation. And, you know, we go to these new housing units. None of that was true. Um, one of the things about bringing them to the new housing unit that was true is this particular housing unit didn't have locks on doors because they don't have toilets themselves. And the housing unit we were bringing them to does have, and they are now behind cells, that do have locks on doors and toilets in themselves. 
So that is a little bit more restrictive for them, but that's also the same condition that it is for everyone else. You know, that, you know, in jails and prisons all across the country. Um, and that's something that we need to address too. We need to make sure that all of our cells have toilets and all of our doors have locks to avoid situations like this, but also just more the everyday stuff. The everyday stuff is if you have cells that don't have locks on in the middle of the night, you can have rapes and it does happen. Right. You know, we, you know, that, that's, that's a concern for inmate safety. We have, um, you know, inmates that could be assaulted in other ways in the middle of the night or any time of day. Sure. We have, um, you know, like the, the correctional officers who work there, you know, they, when you have a housing unit that has, um, you know, like today, 63 in one and 75 in another, you've got two correctional officers and you have no locks on doors, we, you know, they, they could quickly take control of the situation um, and take a hostage. So it's just incredible that we don't have locks on doors. Um, but like I, I repeat myself, we've been planning on putting locks on doors, uh, you know, pretty much the entire time I've been here. Like it was one of the, when I found out about this, it was one of the first things we started to address. It's just with anything in government, it just takes time. And, you know, we got to move people around. We can't do construction while inmates are there. So it's just this, you know, there's a lot of moving pieces. Um, Sheriff Roy, I have a question for you. If you want to take this opportunity to commend the, the job that your staff did, because as I understand what you're saying is none of your staff got seriously injured or maybe injured at all. None of the inmates got seriously injured. If you'd like to um, reflect a little bit on, on, on the execution of your staff. Yeah, so the, the staff, they, um, all these uh, different uh, jails that came here, all different uh, sheriff's offices that sent them, Hamden, Suffolk, Norfolk, Plymouth, and Barnstable, as well as the DOC, um, they all worked really well together. They all have trained to the same standards and, you know, same minimum standards. We have, you know, we all meet the same minimum standards. Um, they went in together. They uh, knew what to do. You know, they, um, they took their job very seriously. They all listened when it came time to speak. You know, they all listened. They're all professional. And, you know, like I said, we, we showed force by showing up with uh, probably well over 100 security staff. We showed that we, you know, we were in there and, but like I said, nobody got hurt. No COs got hurt. No, uh, you know, inmates got hurt. I mean, it was like one, like I said, one inmate had a bloody eye and, but he might've slipped. We don't know how that happened. He might've slipped and fallen. One of the things that the uh, inmates did was they put uh, soapy water all over the floor to make it difficult for when we were to go back in, um, then we would not have quite the same footing. And, but, you know, what we did to counter that was uh, maintenance to, uh, staff, give another shout out to staff, they were able to throw sand and salt all over the floors as soon as we got in there, and that made it so it's not as slippery. But, you know, the, the, the professionalism that the men and women showed, outstanding, outstanding. The fact that nobody got hurt, you know, I mean, they, they, that just, they, you know, they didn't, inmates didn't get hurt. Um, really outstanding i mean they just they, they work well together um professional never said i don't want to do this i'm scared no no these guys they all suited up they knew exactly what they needed to do and they went in um they put people in handcuffs um you know they're you know for the most part nobody resisted if there was I, if there was any resistance nobody got hurt in that resistance to my knowledge um so you know they, they just, they're, they're well-trained professionals and unfortunately you know, and I'm not taking a jab at you, you know, but, uh, you know, somebody called them a guard earlier. Guards just watch people. Correctional officers manage people. 
you know, there's a difference. And that's why I always make sure we call them correctional officers. A correctional officer is a, pra- a trained professional, how to deal with situations like this, de-escalate situations. And, um, you know, we, we had multiple, st- I mean, actually, you know, I'll give a shout out to uh, Major, I'm sorry, not Major, Colonel Oliver. Uh, Colonel Oliver was able to, you know, along with a couple other folks, uh, you know, that was involved with this, um, they were able to really talk down the second housing unit so that we didn't have to use any, I mean, we didn't have to throw flashbangs inside. We didn't have to use CS gas, you know, inside to take it back. Um, the first housing unit, that was necessary. So you use CS gas? What's that? You, you, you did use CS? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, right. that, that made... That, that brought down their resistance <laughs> yes, <it> considerably. Does. <laughs> yeah, it does. It really it made them a lot more. The CS gas is basically um, an irritant. And, I mean, I, I was breathing it myself. I mean, my throat is still a little bit, um, yeah. you know, a little bit, uh, you know, uh, like uh, kind of scratchy from that. Um, you know, I only introduced myself to the situation after the housing unit had been taking control. Otherwise, I was away from the housing unit the entire time. Once they took back control of the housing unit, that's when I introduced myself. That's when I was inhaling the CS gas. But it was, you know, but when the inmates were coming out, you know, they were in their cuffs and they were, you know, uh, you know, they, they were they were clearly under the influence of the CS gas. <laughs> you know, we put all the correctional officers through it as well in, in the academy, just like the military mm-hmm. does that. Um, yep. The with, disco hut. Yeah, when you're in boot camp. Yeah, the yeah. disco hut. So, so um, Sheriff, uh, I guess... You know, you talked about the incident that happened at the ICE detention facility because the tapes had been released. You were critical of how the dogs were deployed. Um, had the, were the dogs used this time at all? No, no. In fact, the dogs were there for a moment. I said, let's get the dogs out of here. We don't need them here. You know, the, um, the dogs... Uh, you literally you know, they, said we're who not- let the dogs out? No, yeah, I said, let's get them out of here. I want to talk to them. Right, yeah. right. So I had, to, I, had to go, I had to go and explain that. I actually, after the whole day was over, I went and talked to the canine unit. I said, look, nothing against you guys. I said, I, the dogs, you know, we're not going to let the dogs bite anybody, uh, number one. So, that, you know, we don't want the dogs on the housing unit. So, and I didn't want the dogs outside of the housing unit in the courtyard where the cameras were uh, seen, you know, filming from uh, the helicopters above. I think there were two helicopters at one point, but... Um, because what I didn't want to give the optic of, well, what are the dogs there? So what do dogs do? Dogs bite. Well, maybe they're going to let the dogs bite. No, we weren't going to do that. So I, you know, the, you know, I want to use the dogs for uh, detection of drugs and uh, other contraband. You know, we have noses for it. Um, that's what we're using for. So we didn't. The dogs were not there. I mean, they were there for maybe you know five minutes, and I said, no, let's let's get them out. You know, just they can be outside on the perimeter. You know, I'm okay with that. But you know, like outside of the you know, on the uh, outside of the chain link fences, outside, outside. Uh, but I didn't want them anywhere near the housing units. So, Sheriff, just one more thing. I think we got to give give your man Jonathan Darlin a real shout out here for communicating all the things that were going on at the jail today. I know Marcus agrees with me that Jonathan Darling really showed ab- above and beyond. Oh yeah, yeah, he was by my side pretty much the whole day. As was the superintendent. We had General Counsel Gretchen Bennett, Chief of Staff Owen Bebo. Um, you know, we had uh, Makupu, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, the you know, uh, legislative liaisons and the you know, president came down. Um, you know, we, we worked really well to the team. At no point were any decisions ever made alone. Every decision that was made, we uh, talked about it with multiple people, at least a half a dozen people in the room at any one time. Sure. Okay, what about this? We, we vetted the idea. 
and then we put it aside if it was a bad idea. One, one of the things, you know, some folks might have said is, well, why didn't you just wait it out? Why did you have to use force at all? Why didn't you just wait for the inmates to eventually get hungry? Here's a couple of problems we had. One of the problems is that we had four diabetics in this housing unit. Mm-hmm. And those, uh, the, the inmates actually, when we approached them to give the insulin, they refused. You know, they wouldn't take the insulin to give to the diabetics. That was one problem. Another problem is they started to make threats. I'm not sure if they were valid or not or legitimate threats, but they started to say, if you don't, you know, do such and so, and they never really made clear what it was, you know, as they, you know, still not sure what it was, we're going to hurt people. So, and another problem, one of the other bigger issues, is those immediate issues, but more globally is that when we, we had to shut down the entire jail, and when we shut down the entire jail, that means everybody else is locked up. Yeah. We have, there's no programming going on. Now you're agitating everyone else. Now the tablets are also turned off. Mm-hmm. Now you're agitating all those other people. And like I said before, half of our inmates are not in locked cells. And so right. that was, gonna, you know, it could have spilled over to a lot more housing units uh, having problems. So that's why just waiting it out really wasn't an option. Sheriff, one more quick thing, because we're, 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 we got to take these uh, breaks, and we appreciate you joining us. But before we let you go, um, people are going to want to know, want, want like, I, I think some sort of formal report, right, that they can read and that they can look at. Is there going to be, um, what did you call it, Chris? An after-action review. An after-action report? Yeah. Yeah, in fact, I said an after-action review is something we're going to do at some point next week, or actually maybe the week after, because Steve Souza, the superintendent, he's going to be away for some uh, required training as part of his role. Um, so he's, you know, we'll probably do it the week after. We'll still have to have all the reports come in. We have to have a special investigation unit do um, their review of the crime scene. This was basically a crime scene. Um, and they have to go through and, you know, document everything. So it'll be a couple weeks before that's done. We Charges will be filed against uh, some of the ringleaders, you know, for, you know, agitating for doing the destruction of uh, government property. So that's not going to go well for them. Um, you know, and like I said, we, we tried to avoid, um, you know, you know, the, uh, I mean, we, 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 we didn't want to use force. We had to, you know, reach the place. We wanted everybody to comply. Like I said, for the most part, they did. But there were some people who are in there on multiple charges. And, you know, this is just what they do. You know, they just, they, they're, you know, yeah. so we have to go through those investigations. I don't first. think you have to convince the audience, Sheriff. Sheriff, we appreciate yeah. you joining us. Um, uh, we appreciate you joining us. I know it's been a busy day. Uh, looking forward to talking with you more in the future. Really uh, appreciate it. Yeah, thank, thank you, you so very much. much. Yeah, no problem. Eventually, the videos will be made public. Um, we just have to go through our regular investigation process. And, you know, we took videos of everything. It's all documented. And, you know, Great. just like my predecessor, Tom Hodgson, said, we look forward to releasing the videos. We do as well. Great. Right. Excellent. Thanks a lot, Sheriff. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Good night, you guys. Got to take a break. We'll be Welcome back. Hey, Tim Weisberg's got a story on WBSM.com. You should really check out. I think he did a really good job on that. Um, while you read that, we're going to take a quick break. Um, so go to WBSM.com, go to the WBSM app, and go check out the story that Tim Weisberg just wrote. We get, we got to take a break. 1420 WBSM can now be heard on 99.5 F. 300. They know the local issues from the inside out, and they call it like they see it. Chris McCarthy and Marcus Farrow are back with more South Coast Tonight on WBSM. Hey, listen, we see you guys waiting patiently online. We're going to get to you in just a moment. We've got to take one more quick break, and then we'll take your calls at 508-996-0500. Stay tuned. Stick around. All right, let's get back to the phones. Good evening. Hello, you're on the air. Yeah, good evening, gentlemen. Hello. Uh, I was just wondering if you have any information about the Bristol County Triad Program. 
Uh, that I was heard it was getting it was being eliminated. Yeah, that that um that program I believe is is being uh, eliminated uh, because I think that's a uh, um L, uh, I think uh, what Sheriff Rowe said is um it's you know a program that can be handled by local councils on aging. Okay, so uh, the IUOK program is going away, and so is the uh, GPS for seniors. Yes, those are going away. Yeah, those are going away. Well, the, the IUOK program, I believe he said, because there's 135 people countywide, he said that there are programs throughout the county that can handle that. Like New Bedford Police Department has a um, has a similar program. He's hoping to transfer some of those calls, those functions to other programs so that he can reallocate the $1.5 million that those pro- programs cost back into the jails. With 135 people they call? Yeah, it's 135. It cost a million dollars. No, no, I'm just saying all those programs. Triad, Are You Okay, Slam Tours, um, all the other extra programs. So basically, prisoners are more important than seniors? Yeah, I don't that's think that's... the core mission of the jail. Yeah, that's the core mission of the jail is the is the, is the inmates and running the jail. The seniors, uh, take, caring for seniors is handled by, like, councils on aging and police, local police departments and other, other functions of government besides the, the county jails. Or you could commit a crime and then he'll take care of you. Yeah. Yeah, basically three hot in a cot. <laughs> there you go. Hey, and, I appreciate... And- my quick, quickly, my favorite program was Beretta because it said, "Don't do the time, don't do, <laughs> do the, the crime, crime if you, you can't do the time." Yet he didn't live by that, did he? Thanks for the call, yeah, sir. We appreciate it. Not. Yep, Beretta right. ended up in this can. Yeah, we got to uh, we got to get back to the calls. Good evening. Hello. Hey, Marcus, Chris, it's Bob McConnell calling. Hey, Bob, how you doing? I'm well. I don't know if uh, tonight is a good night for me to call you guys back after not calling for a long time. Sure, go ahead. Sure, go ahead. You got about ahead. thirty seconds. Oh boy, that figures, uh, Marcus. Well, I was just going to say, uh, Sheriff Perot there reaffirming that point about guards and correction officers. I just wanted to talk about that for a second. I had gone out to MCI Shirley this week, and that uh, kind of compels me to call tonight but um you know if i could just read something real quick we are not just a guard we put our lives on the line every day we fight we counsel we resolve serious conflicts on the fly we are threatened at